All right, soccer freaks. This is ATL on Fire, the podcast where we're going to be talking all things Atlanta United Football Club. So sit back, buckle up, and enjoy. soccer freaks we are back here on atl on fire uh we're now on youtube so if you're watching this on uh your tv hit the subscribe button right down there the red button ring the bell so you get all of the future notifications on segments that i'll be posting on podcasts and of course if you're listening on uh apple podcasts youtube or spotify whatever your catcher is we're available on all of them tell a friend uh subscribe and Thanks for listening. Thanks for following us on Twitter at ATL on fire. Uh, really enjoying some of the, the folks who are contributing to uh, the, the feedback on polls that we've been posting there. And um, I'm going to kick right into gear on uh, my fiery rant. One of the segments I do on the show here. And my rant today is really about the suspension of uh, Franco Escobar and the way that MLS as a league is now using VAR uh, as a post facto way to go back and change the decision that a referee made on the field. Um, you know, I've got my problems with how VAR works during the game as a way to do that, especially on a issue that um, the, the center ref has already made a decision on. And you've got a, a group of people who are looking at monitors going through instant replay uh, say a, a bunch of people may know a lot about soccer. You can guarantee that they all have different opinions on that play with Franco Escobar. Um, you know, I guarantee you if you went to ESPN FC and you had your pundits talking about it, um, you'd have different viewpoints. One thing I think they would all agree on is it was a poor challenge. Um, it was a bad foul. Um, but the referee on the field at the time was right there um, and chose not to throw any uh, cards. And there was certainly a scuffle afterwards. It was a lazy tackle. Um, one thing I will say is it certainly wasn't one that uh, was, you know, a leg breaker or anything like that. It was just, again, a bit of a trip. It was kind of nasty in that way in terms of being unprofessional as a professional foul um, because it was so, uh, it, you know, it was clear he intended to do it. But to go back, you know, days after a game and, uh, you know, ha have a suspension for something like this when the referee on the field didn't, uh, you know, didn't issue any, any cards in the field. I think you just need to move on. If not, then you become a, a league that it would only make sense that you would have people who are fully committed as a committee to be watching uh, the games on replay constantly and figuring out if somebody did something malicious based on their opinion. So that is a really slippery slope that the MLS is going down by using VAR in a way to do this because there's so much gray in these types of things that, um, it, you know, why open that Pandora's box? Um, but that's it. There's a couple other things I could rant about. We're going to get into it on this podcast. And Dave, my co-host. Are you saying, are you saying that hindsight is 2020, Mikey Dobbs? We're going to talk about it all. <laughs> hindsight is 2020. And yeah, I mean, it's just, uh, you know, there's some things that are silly in terms of, uh, you know, using technology to, 
to make the game better. And I, I think this is one that is really crossing the line. Yeah, I mean, you know, I, I couldn't agree with you more. Like, you know, you can go back and you can look and you can evaluate and you can, you know, and uh, it, it's, it's worse than a slippery slope. Yeah. More importantly, Dave, uh, are you having a glass of wine tonight? It's a, it's a Tuesday night, uh, but I expect that you're trying, trying something you were just telling me about uh, your vineyard and you're about to harvest. So I'm sure you're in the spirit. That's correct. Uh, we're making our, our own wine, um, which is going to be American Grape and Norton, which we're very excited about. The harvest is Sunday, and hopefully we'll have a new, our first ever vintage by uh, New Year's. But tonight, um, I'm drinking a Merlot from Washington State from Walla Walla. Um, it's called Ex- uh, Expedition by the Canoe Ridge. Um, it's very nice. That's awesome. I am mixing it up tonight. Um, it just wasn't really in the mood for wine. And my brother got me a really nice bottle of scotch for my birthday. And if you can pronounce that, then I'll give you bonus points. All I know is it's absolutely delicious. Yeah. No single, single malt scotch. A buna haba haba something like that. Now, is it true that you have been drinking Corona to save the good people of Corona during I, this I madness? You can only fight Corona with Corona. <laughs> Or Clorox, I don't know which, but I've chosen Corona as my as my weapon of choice. Um, it's easier to inject into my throat. Saving our good friends from Mexico from a lot of ignorance and um, why people would stop drinking Corona. Yeah, yeah. yeah. Well, they did. <laughs> they did close down the factories. I guess it's uh, Corona and Modelo down in Mexico. I think they're back in business, but. Uh, um, yeah, ho- hopefully they're able to catch up to my demand. <laughs> um, so before, uh, before we get into things, uh, you know, about whining, um, uh, you know, too much, like, I guess, you know, what were your thoughts on this last game? Um, I didn't think it was a great showing, even though we got the win. No, um, you know, to be completely honest, uh, um, it was, very DeBoer esque, you know. I think the tactics that Stephen Glass, you know, um, you know, implemented were you you could see that he has trying to correct what he sees as a couple of flaws of the DeBoer era. Um, you know, one of the things that I have really railed on in the DeBoer era is how you have the outside backs going so much forward right away all the time. And um, which is fine, but if you're going to do that, you better get offense for them. And they just go mindlessly forward and then end up just standing there. And and maybe I'll get to it in a minute. But um, so one of the things that, that we talked about in the MLS's back tournament um, when the outside backs went flying forward, you know, we had nobody back and we, we gave up a goal right down the middle and uh, it was a terrible goal, which we talked about on the podcast. But so he has clearly tried to correct that. So he still has the outside backs going flying forward exactly Mm -hmm. like the Boer did. He has the two center backs going wider to protect for the spaces that the outside backs have vacated and he has Remedy sort of sitting in. Um, and so, okay, yes, maybe that's good that you're protecting the space. But a couple of times, 
Remedy wasn't quite back yet, and the two center backs were really far apart. There was a gaping hole. If we give a give up the ball uh, in a turnover, they could have run right down the middle of us. And um, and so to me, you know, he's fixing a problem that you say, okay, great, it's fixing a problem. But you know, if you fix a problem, it should be a problem that's worth fixing, right? And the the problem I have with it is all of that outside back, you know, going forward or whatever, and we're getting so little offense from it. Um, Yeah. And, you know, I mean, there were some good moments, I think, with George Bellow um, up front. One of the things I liked about him um, playing, the good side of what I saw with George Bellow was, um, you know, I I don't think he was necessarily mindlessly running forward. Um, He, 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 wasn't afraid to attack people, which I liked. And he was, there was a couple of moments like he was able to beat the guy and get some crosses in. But what I did see was when he again, did not have the ball, he felt a little lost. He didn't have the posture and awareness of really what was going on. And I saw a lot of that, not just him, but I don't know if you noticed in the first half, particularly like particularly when we had it in our backfield, people were not in good shapes in terms of, where they knew where each other were on the field. There were not good triangles. Um, People are stepping into other people's spaces. Um, Well, the reason why I I would disagree with you about mindless is because, so it's very easy to see that Bella was going forward to good effect when we attacked down the left. But one thing that probably many people didn't notice, but when we were attacking in the middle or attacking down the right, Bella was going up there also just, 40 yard sprint. Okay. And the number of times in the game that Bellow made a 40 yard sprint never was involved in the play one iota because we were on the right side and then eventually had to come back 40 yards. I mean, you might as well, in my opinion, have taken him and said, okay, when we attack down the right, what I want you to do is step off the field and just run wind sprints. All you're doing is wasting his energy for nothing. And not only does he not contribute to the offense because we're on the right side and we don't need him yet. We're never going even close to him, but then he's got to sprint back. So he's just tiring himself out. Yeah. I think there's definitely more measure he could use on when he chooses to, to run up front. I'm not going to disagree with you there. I think, I guess more of my point was that when he did have the ball up front and he did make the runs, um, he was dangerous. Um, oh, and, he was terrific and, when we attacked down the left but, side. It was really effective. But the thing I noticed most uh, from George Bellow, and you know, there was a couple of moments if Nashville was worth anything as a team, which is a whole other issue I have with the game. They just were completely unimpressive to me in terms of really, you know, taking advantage of what I thought was a bad performance by Atlanta, Atlanta United in general. Um, you know, there were moments where, again, that that ball across into the space where George Bellow had given up by going forward was absolutely there. Um, there was two or th- one, one time particularly that um, had a Nashville player been sharper with uh, that ball across the field, it would have been the same situation situation that happened several times in the MLS back tournament. So uh, I hear you there. But on the right side, I would go with the flip side, which is so Escobar didn't get down the right side as much. Um, but the other thing that happened was, so Brooks Lennon was playing right wing and Brooks Lennon 
was coming back and defending and, you know, ostensibly helping out um, Escobar on the right side. And we didn't really need it. And many, many times when we won the ball, he was defending unnecessarily and we had nobody to outlet on the wing. You know, that, that Al Marone, you know, being open when we turned the ball over in that gap and let's run at him. Escobar many, many times was standing right next to our defense. I mean, sorry, uh, Brooks Leonard was standing right next to our defenders, Escobar. And um, originally it was uh, walks and then later it was Robinson. But um, why do you need that? Why do you have him coming all the way back? I mean, he's the naturally to do that. And you say, Oh, look, he's working so hard, but he's not really helping us defensively. And then when we win the ball, he's not available offensively. And so one of the things that you saw from Brooks Lennon is almost every time he got the ball, he got the ball to feet. How many times do you remember in this game where he got the ball running into space? And the one thing you would say about Brooks Lennon is his, his strength is his pace and his, you know, and his physicality, right? He's, he's strong and he's fast. So, but you know, in tight spaces, it's not, you know, his, his, dream you know like if you compare for example to Gressel's role where Gressel was often hanging out there and available and we'd put it into space and many times he had the possibility of serving it in early just because he was running with his head open yeah I I still like with Brooks Lennon I don't know what to think of him Um, all I know is I'm just not seeing enough of production I guess is the best way to to put it um I mean, I, again, I like his work rate. Um, you know, I feel like he's d- definitely a little more defensive-minded, to your point. So he might be kind of duplicative of where Escobar is back there. Um, mm-hmm. But, you know, I, I think I'm not seeing enough di- diversity and dynamic play from him that like Gressel did offer in terms of being able to cut in or know the timing of the cross and things like that. I think those things are, you know – He's had enough minutes now, and, and I just haven't seen it. But he's been asked to do stuff that is just not in his strength. He's been asked to get the ball and play, you know, give-go kind of PD kind of or Barco kind of football, and that's not his strength. His strength is power and pace and running in spaces. So you've got to figure out as a coach, if you're going to play him as the wing, you've got to figure out a way that he's out running in space and available and then he's a danger because then the left back has got to be super worried that he could run right by him and it opens up everything for everybody else. Yeah. So one, one of the other things, and this was going to be one of my rants was Adam John. Um, I just felt like there's just not enough to pick on the guy to have it be my rant. Um, but, you know, really unimpressed with any sort of impact on the game. Um, and, and I know that, you know, Nashville had some, more stout guys in the back to match up with him and his, his physicality, which is one thing it doesn't matter. Like I, I want to see the smile wiped off his face and he, you know, not just be happy that he's playing in the MLS and not the USL. He needs to get mean and use that physicality to do something. And I just feel like, yeah, that that maybe Kubo or somebody should have come on earlier um, because, you know, it was clear early on, he was really just not making any sort of difference um, with his physicality and winning balls and he even got pushed over in the corner, which was a foul. Yes. But um, you know, he's not selling it. He's not getting it done. Um, just, but his, it. his movement is non-existent. I mean, 
yeah. he looks to me like a product of of really bad coaching in America, right? Because yeah. he, he he is strong, he's on the ball, you know, he gets, you know, in many ways, in some respects, he was much better served in the DeBoer system where we were on the ball all the time, very static in the box, and we, we ended up, you know, forcing a lot of crosses and that kind of thing and maybe he might have bailed us out a few times by scoring some of those goals because he can clearly finish and he's physical in the box but in the middle of the park his movement is non-existent and so you know he might as well we might as well stick a cone out there right he's just doing nothing for us yeah um, and Kubo like to me I haven't seen as much I saw a little bit of him when he was in MLS previously um um, but he's also a physical player. He's not quite as big as John, but he plays very physically, right? And 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 yet his movement is way better than John. So right. he is going to be a huge upgrade. Yeah. So let's uh, let's kind of work back then. Um, the the I guess star of the show in terms of goals is PT, um, but I. I don't know where if I said this on Twitter or what, but I think he did two things right all night. And that was those two goals, which were great goals. Um, especially the first one, I thought PT did a really nice job of, of putting in uh, the work to get that into the net. I mean, he did a great job of taking it down, staying strong on the ball um, and really put on a, a fantastic move there on the end to cut it and slot it in with his left foot. Um, so I thought that that first goal was really all PT in terms of, of getting it done. Yeah. I mean, you know, supposedly um, Stephen Glass is, you know, unleashed PD. Um, if you follow our Twitter account, the the greatest tweet, in my <laughs> yeah. opinion, in, in Atlanta United history is uh, about PD. It says, you know, in reference to Harry Potter, Master has given me a new pair of socks. PD is free. <laughs> so I had to ask uh, but, my wife what that meant, but I, I get it now. But nice, nice, oh, hilarious. nice retweet. Um, yeah, I thought that's hilarious. pretty funny. And, um, and the, the Twitter person who sent it out, I can't remember her name, but she said that her husband didn't think it was funny, but her, your husband's wrong. That was very funny. But, um, but you know, the one thing you would say is, so the way he has it, so he's clearly, Stephen Glass has made it a little bit asymmetrical, if you will. Bellow is much more for, forward, which means that, and we're covering a little bit in behind him. So we're not so vulnerable. And that means that PD can stay a little bit farther forward and has a supposedly a little more freedom. And if you have to give Steven glass credit for something, you would say that, well, because he's a little bit further forward than he was under DeBoer, who insisted that everybody be part of the system, um, that he was more available to make those two great plays. Yeah. Whether that truly bears out over a long term, I don't know, but you got to give him some credit. Yeah. And, you know, the, the other, I mean, my point about those being the only two things, right? I felt like, you know, there was a few balls. He made some nice passes um, in, in the space to people. So I don't want to say those are the only two, but, you know, he again did not look like a player that could ever play in Europe the way he was fumbling about with trying to do too much and almost tripping over the ball at times. Like you just, I don't know. He looks to me like a, a, you know, a player in La Liga. There's a number of players who, you know, the way La Liga plays, it's a little bit slower. You're allowed to, you know, fade in and out of games that you can pop up for a moment of brilliance and change the match and you're a hero. So yeah. 
He looks that kind of player. I mean, and and I, I, I'm a fan of PDs. I think he's great. Yeah, I just there's some things he does that absolutely drive me crazy. Um, <laughs> you know, and again, that goes. I've talked about that on other podcasts. We don't need to rehash it. Um, but the second goal, uh, you know, a fantastic fantastic finish again. Um, but it's what a great player should have done when that ball gets laid on a plate like that, in my opinion. Um, and it was very nice. It was near post upper, upper left, um, maybe a couple different places he could put that, but Hey, you know, great finish. But again, I would expect that from a player of his quality. Yeah. It's a sensational finish. I mean, yeah. I think a, the two goals are, are, are world-class goals. So um, all credit to him. Um, so who else do we want to, to zoom in on in terms of a, a player on the field and their performance? There's one more player, and I think the one thing that that Stephen Glass may have done that could be a huge improvement. So remember under Tata, one of the things that he did is just had Remedy sit in front of the back four. And for God only knows what reason, DeBoer had these crazy schemes. You often saw Remedy even advanced up the field further than Nogby, for example. And one of the things that was very different already in this game is that Remedy was once again sitting in front of the back four. And that should make us defensively more solid and go from from defense to offense a little better Um, because he was brilliant in that role and, in my opinion, really awful in the role that that DeBoer gave to him. Oh, um I, I agree with you. One of the things, another thing that could have been my rant too, is the tackle by Mesa that ended up being a yellow card. What were your thoughts on that? And and the commentators really summed it up as far as I was concerned. I was like, if you're going to take tackles like that out of the game, maybe this isn't a game I want to watch anymore. I mean, you can't take defense out. Um, you know, it, it, he was a hundred percent through the ball on that. And yeah, yeah he got, got, he the, got ball. the legs, the leg second on, on a fabulously timed, tough tackle um and you know hey this is very classic mls refereeing which is i think too many of the mls referees really didn't play enough well i don't know if it's play enough but the you get the feeling you know why so why are the premier league and the european referees so much better than the mls and i think it's day in and day out growing up around the game watching it all the time and you get to realize that you know that tackle um, not only is just part of the game but one of the things you get a sense for as a referee a good referee is what the players want and what the players don't want and and I agree with you completely that any player you know barring some Neymar role or whatever who's being honest wants that tackle in the game as being legal and and so but the but if you don't grow up watching games in day in and day out you you're you have to fall back much more on the letter of the law did he get in a little bit of his foot or whatever instead of saying what is it that we want the game to be what do what do we want to be illegal and what do we want to be legal and what the players want like if you as a referee make a call that nobody was going to be upset if you didn't make a call, then it's a bad call, right? The play should go on. The players should own the game at some level, right? And, and you know, 
it doesn't mean the players always get what they want. But, yeah. but if you consensus amongst the players that certain things should be allowed, and I think if you got the majority of people, they would say that tackle belongs in the game. Yeah, uh, I, I agree. And don't get me wrong, I mean, it was a tough call on the field as a bang-bang play. Um, and, you know, it, it was certainly on the cusp of being a, a bad tackle, but it wasn't. Um, and, and to your point, I think, yeah, that is something that with more hours as a ref, you need to get right. Um, and the right. referee caused the skirmish on the sideline with Bellow too, by just making a horrendous, you know, throwing call, yeah. which you would say, oh, you know, who cares? And the players should be better about it. But players are fighting all the time. And if you get something as simple as a throw-in call completely wrong, which he did, and it was so obvious, it makes players angry. Yeah, you got to get those things right when they're that obvious. Obviously, sometimes it's a bang bang; it's impossible, and the players will forgive you for that. But when it's that obvious, you get that anger, angry reaction, right? And you should know it, right, yeah. when it happens. I mean, there was a lot of frustration because of that on the field. I mean, you could sense it uh, big time, uh, especially with no fans on the field. You were just feeling that <laughs> uh, boiling up from all the players, and and luckily they didn't let that take over completely. They're able to keep their heads and get the win. Um, uh-oh, Dev, you, know, you froze up for a second there. Good, you're back. I have to say, early on early on in the game, um, you know, there was some just pretty horrendous commentary um, about the fans or whatever, but a little bit later in the game, um, I can't remember which one of them it was, but there was a little play on that when, when Atlanta United got the goal and they were in a little possession and and – one of the commentators said something basically about now they've gotten the virtual fans into it. You know, the Atlanta United fans are really into it. And that I thought was really clever and funny, right? Like, like, okay, you know, it's obviously somebody pressing a button, right? Yeah. (laughs) um, But it, but I thought that was funny. So I I was a little down on the refs early on the commentary early because I thought it was, some of the way they treated that whole situation with the empty stands was a little cheesy and weird, but later I think they got it right. Yeah. And, you know, it's funny you mentioned that because uh, I was watching the game with one of the neighbors and we were talking about, I wonder if there's any rules about um, how the music or the, how the crowd is music and, and chants are pumped in. Like, is there, is that, you know, a, is there a guide to that or are they allowed to crank it up and move it down however they want? And is it, is, or is it run by like some neutral party? Because it does seem like it would be, you know, a little bit of an advantage. I don't know. Here, I have to say here on the ATL on Fire podcast, we have to have the fans continuously behind us. It's something that we lack and uh, we maybe want to work on virtual uh, audience. Yeah. Yeah. We could take advantage of that. Um, Dave, who else uh, is worth mentioning from the game or – uh, you know, I thought Hyman was relatively quiet because I'm not – my, my mind's not going to him during that game. What were yeah, your thoughts? Rosetto as well. I yeah. mean, kind of disappeared in the match a little bit. But, you know, again, the other thing that we, we have now is at least first game, we have three center midfielders. So, um, you know, there's a little bit more of a dynamic and they don't have to be as prominent. We can still control the midfield. We had, you know – a vast majority of possession. It was 60% at one point. I don't know what the final was, but um, you know, one of the things you have to say though, 
you know, 60, 60% possession and you get outshot 16 to five. And I know yeah. a lot of those shots were long shots that weren't really dangerous for Nashville, yeah. but still um, it's not good, not good getting outshot, but also not good 60% possession and you get five shots yourself. Yeah. I mean, I can't remember, you know, it was at least 20 plus 30 minutes before we got a shot on goal and they had, yeah, it was, um, it was tough there in the, 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 certainly the first 30 minutes of that game, if, if I recall correctly. Um, this idea that you're going to get a more attacking era just by liberating players and saying, oh, you can go more forward. It's just madness. It's this coaching speak, right? Yeah. That's not how you get – you actually have to have a way of breaking down teams. Yeah, and I, I felt like Joseto was obviously feeling his way into the team. I mean, he's only played, what, probably three in three games at most, yeah. uh, something yeah. like that. He played very little in the MLS's back tournament. Yeah. Um, like he came on a couple of times. I don't know whether he even started. Maybe he started one match. Yeah. Well, and then Miles Robinson came on for uh, Mesa, correct, after the injury. Yeah, and clearly he was fine, which means that – I think you're overthinking the injury situation, right? You know, you know, the fact that he doesn't start and Barco doesn't start and they is for all everything we've heard is just very minor yeah. knocks. Like at and some so, point you gotta be like, suck it up and play. We need you. And as I understand, they said everybody is healthy going in that game and we saw no Barco. And as I understand it, he is uh uh He's not on the injury report this week because Doug Roberson was talking about that. And it's a bit of the controversy now that um, if he's not listed on the injury report, why is Darren Eel saying uh, he's got a knock, um, but he's fine or whatever. And, you know, cause now there's rumors that they're putting him in a glass jar because they want to trade him during the European window, which is unlikely. It's certainly possible, um, but unlikely. Uh, but at, at the same time, you know, why haven't we seen them? Is there some other uh, story looming there? Why wouldn't he be on the field? I think it's a question of, of Stephen Glass and all of these modern coaches um, just being overly cautious on the players and their status. And, and, you know, in fairness, they have a lot of matches coming up in a short period of time and maybe he thinks, okay, we can use that as an excuse and then we can have him rested coming for the next second game and, you know, there's something to be said for that, but it, it's a, I mean, he got away with it, but it's a big gamble, right? You know, if, if you lose the first match at home to Nashville in as a coach, right, you lose the team. Yeah. Right. So you've got to win that match and, and, and you know, it worked. So, you know, credit to him, you got to give him credit, but um, if it were me um, coaching that team, I would want to have regardless of the six game future, I would have wanted to go out and make a statement for nothing else, for confidence to play our best team and play, you know, at home, give it our best game. Yeah. All right. So I'm Dave, I'm going to jump to a new segment. Hopefully we, we can have enough content to make this part of our regular gig here, but we're jumping to uh, our Twitter ATL on fire happenings. Um, a couple of polls I've run since the last time we, we uh, did a podcast, and I think the yeah, the most relevant one just to to kick off is um, you know the fact that you know if the the folks that follow us on AT, ATL on Fire had to give us a grade, um, A being you know an A uh, in terms of uh, a good grade, B okay, C 
poor D close to failing, right? Uh, nobody, nobody gave us a D. I was close to giving ourselves a D, um, but PT scored those goals that were, were quite nice. Um, I gave us a C personally, um, even with the win. Um, but 81% uh, gave us a B and uh, 6% a A. So very few people giving us a, a great performance. Which I think yeah, is we're not we're not we're an optimistic bunch. Yeah, I, I'm with you. I, I'm more in the C range. Yeah, and, and going into uh, going into the game, I asked if if people would have been most happy with a win. Clearly, seeing we're playing attacking soccer, keeping a clean sheet, or seeing players smile. Uh, over fifty percent, fifty four percent, just wanted to see attacking soccer. I think that was the overwhelming. Um, uh, opinion, but 35% just wanted to win and nine or 10% wanted to just see us see a smile. So uh, I, I feel like, yeah, we got, got the win there, but I don't necessarily think we saw attacking soccer. Now, most importantly, Mikey Dobbs, what's the poll on the ATL on fire podcast? What do we get as a grade? Oh, well, maybe I should put that out to the listeners after the show. Um, I, I'll be happy with a C. We'll see how it goes. Um, all right. What other ones do we have on here? So, yeah, you had posted about, you know, Stephen Glass's previous record um, and, you know, the excitement around him as a coach. Um, you know, I, I think we'll see how it goes here in, in coming months. But I think it goes to kind of the bigger question of who's, who's going to be the next coach um, after Stephen Glass. I don't think he's the long-term solution. Um, and uh, when is it going to happen? It was amazing. You know, I, I put out that tweet just which literally just had the statistics of Stephen Glass when he was the Atlanta United two manager, which were really poor. I mean, um, we gave up 77 goals on Atlanta United two in 34 matches, um, which is pretty atrocious. And, you know, people say, well, you know, it's amazing to me how people come back and say, well, he was forced to play the tactics. He has the youngest team. He, you know, um, you know, he's not developing a team, he's developing players. And all of that is true, you know, fair enough. But what I would counter that is, if you take a really great coach, a um, Guardiola, a Klopp, you know, whatever you think is a terrific coach, you think that those coaches would have had those statistics coaching the Atlanta United too? Yeah. And I saw – And now that doesn't saw... mean that, you know – yeah, go ahead. Yeah, no, I was just saying I saw some of the rebuttal in terms of, you know, his job is to, uh, you know, bring up the talent and, you know, there's a lot of changes with players going up and down. Again, to your point, I thought, you know, most of those are excuses. Like, you don't have to have the best record in the world, but it should be a winning record at minimum. And, and, and no matter what you do, any kind of coach getting any kind of organization amongst the team cannot give up 77 goals in 34 matches. It's just atrocious record. And um, one of the things I, I do not fathom and I will never understand and never agree with is these people who say, well, you know, he's developing players, but not developing a team or whatever. If you are developing players and that has to include defenders, if you're developing defenders and midfielders and forwards, you will not have that record. These are not, I mean, they're, they're not perfectly correlated, but they're not separable. 
if you do a fabulous job of developing all the different players, you cannot have that bad a record. Yeah. And then, okay, so the, one of the other interesting points is, well, oh, he's forced to adopt Frank DeBoer's system, which may not have been Glass's system, um, to accomplish just that. Now, do you think that's a fair argument? Where maybe that's completely opposite of how Stephen Glass wants to think about, you know, a total f- football. Uh, well, certainly not anymore because he's yeah. been handed the keys and he basically played Frank DeBoer's system, right? So if he had some system in his mind that he thought was so much better and he was going to play that, you know, DeBoer never thought of, um, it doesn't exist because he would have played it. All right. One of our other polls, Dave, was uh, what, you know, restaurant do you miss the most? Uh, either in the stadium uh, uh, Mercedes-Benz or just nearby in that walk, walking distance area. The the poll um, had game changers as uh, 60%, Molly B's 20%, no mas cantina, which I've never been to 20%. And I threw in restaurant 10, which I never even heard of. I had to look it up. <laughs> well, in our seats, you know, we have, um, we're the elitist uh, booth, you know, in the, um, what do they call that? The whatever Cherokee casino yeah. um, booth. Um, we, we don't want to admit that, but we are. And um, <laughs> the um, we used to have Iberian pig, but then they changed it to panko oh, or whatever. And the panko's pretty good. Um, yeah. The panko's no. nice, but after that, after being spoiled with Iberian pig, frankly, it was just a tough pill to swallow. The right, fries so I- at the Iberian pig were terrific. So um, based on what we were just talking about, this will be the last Twitter poll. Um, you know, I basically said, you know, given the current talent that we have, you know, to maximize the talent, if you were the coach today, and this is essentially transitioning into Cat's Corner, uh, the poll that I did. So Dave, if you were the, the coach today, given the talent that has been given to you by Carlos Bocanegra and the, in the front office, the way that it's shaped out over the last six plus plus months with Rosetto, Jurgen Dom, all these uh, new folks that are coming in. A, what formation uh, would you go with uh, predominantly and, and how would you morph? And, you know, what are some of the things that you would think about in terms of um, maximizing the talent of the players that you see on our roster today? 56% on our poll said that they wanted to go with the four, two, three, one. Do you agree or you want something different? I actually don't think, I mean, uh, my recollection is that 4-5-1 was not in the poll. Um, I, I labeled it as a 4-2-3-1 just to be okay. a you know, little cheeky. <laughs> um, I'd play 4-5-1 um, and I would keep it simple. Um, so, you know, our team is not built with a classic striker at this point without Martinez. Um, maybe Kubo could be, you know, the one. Um, but we have a lot of creative people behind them. And if, if you have people in the midfield, Petey and, and Barco with pretty free reins, one on the right, one on the left behind them. And we're built to counterattack, you know, with speed on the wings. Now they have they've they've spent all this money with with speed. You know, they've they've got Brooks Lennon and they have um Bello and they have Dam, you know, Jurgen Dam, and they have um, Mulraney, right? So much pace, right? Not necessarily fabulous players, skillful players, you know, not the Gressels of the world that we had in the past or, um, um, 
Um, who was the guy the first year who went to DC United? Oh my goodness, forgetting his name. Oh yeah, um, blanking too. But, but anyway, um, but we had some guys with real skills and who could break people down. But these players are 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 athletic. Assad. They are yeah, Assad, Emil Assad. Um, they're athletic and they are strong and they're pacey and you know they're built to counter right and so um i would play it very very simple a four in the back one defensive midfielder remedy sitting in front of them i feel like our defenders are excellent we could have without doing any of this you know what i consider garbage overthinking it just play a very very solid four in the back allow the the outside backs to go forward but only you know in an overlapping capacity not this flying up the wings or whatever so and who's really, your who's your four in the back um so it'd be Bello probably out left and escobar out right and then the center to um certainly robinson um and, and Probably Mesa. You could have walks, but I think that's a solid back four. Yeah. And if there's any weakness in it, you know, Mesa, maybe pace, um, uh, maybe walks in terms of reading the game a little bit, but um, Robinson has been just terrific. And any of those deficiencies, as long as you don't have people running at your back four, you're fine. And so if you sit remedy in front of them, we, I would say get up the field and, you know, basically fight at midfield for the ball with those back f- five, basically. And then as soon as we win it, the, the remaining five on the field go and have a lot of aggressive. But sitting back in a counterattack style where everybody goes and you don't know who's coming at you. Because if we're just being honest about how we're doing, if we're going to possess the game or whatever – um, we don't have the players who will break you down. You know, you're asking Brooks Lennon to beat a guy. You're asking, you know, Jurgen Don. Uh, you're asking um, John or Jurgen Don to, you know, you know, be skillful and take on a guy. They're not going to do it. They just don't have the talent, yeah. right? Yeah. So, yeah, I agree with that. Um, and by the way, um, now that we're talking about breaking people down with remedy in the midfield, having to play the role of our old friend Darlington Nagby, I guess somewhat in that, that role. Um, did you see the goal that Nagby scored last week uh-huh. or when was that over the weekend? What Anybody who flips track. the ball up to themselves has some serious skill. Yeah. Um, we were texting uh, within the, the, the network here that we all miss that guy greatly. Um, still think he should have stayed, but uh, wanted to get home. Still crying a little bit inside. Um, all right, Dave, what else, uh, what else do we have on the agenda here? Running out of, I'm running out of paper on my, my computer here. Well, uh, so our next opponent is, um, Miami, right? Or what else you got? Well, what I was going to say is that the the timing of the coaching search, which is one, something I wanted to talk about. Um, it seems like, and I may be overreading this, but it seems like the Atlanta United organization is content to go with an interim manager for the remainder of the year and do a search in the off season. And the question I have to you, Mikey Dobbs, is why? Why are we not 
Now, maybe we can't, maybe they are aggressively finding, going after a new manager and they can't find it, but it doesn't seem like it. I'll tell you why. Because they screwed it up so badly last time, they can't afford to, you know, make another awful decision like bringing in Frank DeBoer. I mean, that's the simplest way I can put it. I think, you know, there's probably some options out there. Um, I, I also say number two is that, you know, Eels and, and the team, they still wanted to go into this um, club with the thinking of just, again, thinking maybe bigger than any other club. Um, and maybe that's not um, excluding maybe some names that otherwise we would think it would be impossible. Um, I think they would at least want to go on that hunt um, and give Eels the way, you know, the, the leeway to network and see what's possible. Um, I guess those are my two main answers. I, I usually would want to have a, a third, but, um, and also, well, I guess the third is the fact that, I mean, look, the dreaded third, the dreaded third is, well, it's pretty easy, right? I mean, this season is somewhat of a wash, even though the trophy would look the same if there's a trophy. Um, but it's still like, wait, 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 to, wait, wait, wait. Why would the, you say the season is a wash? We, we're three and three. The, at some point, there will be an asterisk on almost every sport this season, even though the players care just as sure. much and the, the fans want it. There just is. Um, it sucks, but I, I do think that that is there as an underlying theme. As much as we want baseball and, you know, what, if whatever happens with college football, it's probably going to be a tournament between the four ACC teams, which probably have been the – or. Uh, ACC and the SEC teams anyway. And, you know, whoever wins that probably would have won anyway, but um, it just doesn't have the same impact. I don't know. It just doesn't. It's been a crappy year. Do you you think that we, for example, so Barcelona passed on Pochettino. They took Ronald Koeman. Yeah. um, An old DeBoer teammate in the Dutch national team. Um who I think is very much a very similar coach to DeBoer. So good luck, Barcelona. Um, but <laughs> yeah, um, I, I think that Pochettino didn't want the job because he knew, I mean, why take a dumpster fire based on a bunch of players that are, you know, big wages, uh, you know, in their thirties. I mean, they've got, and that's why Messi wants to leave. They know that they're in a complete rebuild, just like a baseball team. It's going to take, you know, three years before there's a light at the end of that tunnel. Do you think that Atlanta United made a run at Pochettino? Uh, I have no idea, um, honestly. I mean, it's all conjecture as far as I'm concerned. Because there should be a connection. Darren Eels knew Pochettino from his Tottenham days. They they know each other. Yeah, I guarantee, like, yes, I think. So, yes, I think at some, some level, some level of communication to Eels to him has probably happened to feel out the waters on whether that's even worth pursuing so yeah i think so um now how much traction that has in, it has had in terms of being a real conversation I have no idea but i'm sure that i'm sure they took a swing in some capacity one of the things that 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 continues to flabbergast me is that so much emphasis even in this modern era is still put on the playing career of the manager right? So DeBoer gets credibility because he was a terrific player. Ronald Koeman gets credibility because he's a terrific player, right? Thierry Henry from, you know, yeah. Yeah. Um, and the, and the question is, um, there are some examples, Guardiola being a, a classic one of Zenedine a terrific Zidane. player. 
Zidane, you know, but for for every one of them, there's probably 10 other examples. A Jurgen Klopp was nobody as a soccer player. A Mourinho, nobody as a soccer player, right? Why is there the the emphasis on the playing career for coaching? I see this even at the youth level. You know, all these parents are like, well, what did you do as a player? Does it really matter? Yeah. I mean, does that make you a good coach? I once did I a mean, bicycle if- kick when I was in sixth grade. It dribbled into the corner. Does that help? I mean, yeah. how many of, you know, if, if, if you just, let's say we forget soccer, right? And we say, all right, how many of the great coaches, the Nick Sabins, the Mike Krzyzewskis, the whatever, how many of them were famous as a player? Yeah. Very few. There are very few players who were terrific as a player and also terrific as a coach. They exist, so you can't ignore players. But why the emphasis on players? Yeah, I, you know, I, I don't. That's the tough part. I don't think you can exclude a player either, because I think again, I would say it's fifty-fifty. I mean, I think there have been some of the best coaches of all time have had some level of professional, even if they weren't like a star, that they played at a high level. So that the end. Phil Jackson like was Bobby a great Robson, player. like those. You know, there's a lot of a lot of players like that are really famous coaches that I, I think to some degree they were like the, the black sheep of the, you know, in the professional career and they weren't the greatest. And so they transitioned into coaching um, as, as something naturally that they could do well. But Alex Ferguson, mediocre player. Yeah. Um, so me- many of these, so you want to meet, so that's what I would agree with. You would want a mediocre player um, that played at a high level, but got out early and started coaching like that to me would be the ideal recipe. Well, my point being that, so, so I do think that, you know, it helps to have been around the professional level, you know, if you have no connection or whatever, then, you know, it's hard to know what it was like to be in there. But this idea that, you know, these famous players get, you know, more credibility as a coach is madness. Right. Um, Because if you look at the track record, very often it's the players who were mediocre players who turned out to be way better coaches. Yeah. So who do you think we're looking at then? Do you think that we're looking over in Europe, which it sounds like, I, I guess there's been some conversation with Frank DeBoer since he's been back that he was saying that um, Eels and Bo- Boca Negra and the front office were very much wanting to transition to a European style coach, which makes no sense, right? Given the culture on the team, right? And they were talking about this on uh, ESPN FC. Why would you, you know, try to make that type of move when the culture of the team is clearly heavy, heavily uh, Argentinian, South American? Uh, why wouldn't you look, you know, south of the equator, frankly, to, you know, figure out somebody to come in and, and play kind of that free soccer that we love here in Atlanta United? Yeah, I mean, you know, in some respects, you, they should be looking at the coach who's coaching the champions of Chile and the coach who's coaching the champions of, you know, these some of these South American, you know, obviously it may be hard to get the Argentinas um, or maybe even the Brazils, but, you know, some of the leagues that are still very good, you know, some coach who's really doing well in Uruguay or Chile or, um, even you know. Liga MX, you know, I think there's probably mm-hmm. – 
there's been players that seem to be migrating that are not yet in their final years of, of yeah those Liga playing. MX coaches would love to come to the US because um, you know it's a stereotype but it tends to be true that the, the the rashness with that the organizations make coaching decisions and um, in Liga MX, you know, they fire per people, you know, their first loss kind of thing. And it's, it's, it's madness. Whereas, you know, Atlanta United for all, we have, you know, 80,000 people in the stands or whatever. There's, there's much more patience amongst the club, I would think. Yeah. So, yeah, I mean, that's the direction, that's the direction I would be looking, which is, is south of our borders to find the next Atlanta United coach. Yeah. Um, I mean, that's, that, that's, you know, even, you know, the, the crazy thing is as, as maligned as college soccer is, right? Bruce Arena, terrific college soccer coach, went on to be the best MLS coach of all time. Caleb Porter, who's now doing very well at Columbus again, you know, was the college coach of the year at Akron or whatever. Um I don't think Atlanta United is looking at the best college coaches, you know, who have a history of track, you know, winning because they think, you know, college soccer is not, not the same, but yeah, I'd look at a winner before I looked at a name, right. I would much rather have a guy who's been phenomenal for, you know, six years in the ACC or whatever, or in the PAC 10 than I would, you know, um, a guy who has very little track record as a professional, you know, name in Europe. I mean, Juventus hiring Pirlo, in my opinion, is going to be a disaster, right? Because Pirlo, as great a player as he was, right, I don't think he has much of a chance of being a good coach. Yeah. All right, Dave, we, uh, we've, we've been running almost an hour here, I think. Um, Anything else you want to hit on before we sign off? Big game uh, tomorrow night um, against uh, um, Miami. Miami, right? um, that's right. What time is it? Um, Seven thirty. Yeah, I think so. Um, it's, a, it's a must win. They started out zero and five. Yeah. Um, if we're gonna, you know, maintain momentum, we've had a. To be honest between the games that we played prior to the MLS, the the pandemic and the MLS is back. And then the games we had coming out of it, we've had a really weak schedule. We've got to take advantage of that. Agreed. Yeah. I'm, uh, I'm excited for, you know, another game, no matter what the, what the result, I'm just happy to be watching soccer again. That's for sure. So that's stay safe out there, dear podcast listeners. Um, Don't, get near anybody else indoors <laughs> yeah i agree um, maybe you know if we're gonna maybe touch about that a little bit you know what do you think about um them polling people about the possibility of having a socially distanced crowd at mercedes-benz yeah i mean i i put a poll on there wasn't a huge response and there's like only uh, 10 or so responses but it was 50 50 uh in terms of if there was a plan uh for it to be safe and you obviously enforce people to wear mat. I'm assuming things like wearing masks and that there was, you know, six or plus 10 feet separation between you and the other folks in the seats that there might be, uh, you know, uh, openness for people to, you know, go into the building. Um, you know, yeah, I, 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 and I, my point, I think 
as much as you could clearly social distance in Mercedes Benz, it'd be easy, but I just don't think it's a smart thing to do. Yeah. I think, you know, at, at this point, you know, with, with all the soccer you're seeing in Europe, um, why not just enjoy it on TV at this point? I think that's the exactly. right, that's the right yeah. choice. Um, as much as I would like to go back to game changers and get one of those steak sandwiches on fries or whatever it is, uh, yeah. need to stay safe. So let's do it. Stay safe, everybody. And, um, Dave, let's try to get back on, on the zoom again after this, uh, Miami game and bring some more content to the listener listeners. And, uh, thanks for joining. Hope everybody has a great evening, uh, and tunes into the Miami game tomorrow. Take care, everybody. Thanks for listening. If anybody actually made it this far in the podcast, we'd love to hear your feedback on Twitter at ATL on fire and tell your friends to subscribe. We are on iTunes, Google play, and really any sort of podcast, uh, platform that you're on. So do listen again. Have a good one.